I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening uh, to the book of Deuteronomy. We'll go back there for a little while. Moving on to the book of Joshua uh, in a little while. Uh, yet we have a few uh, chapters remaining for us here in this a second giving of the law of God as Moses is preparing to pass leadership from himself to Joshua, having been told by the Lord that due to his disobedience in striking the rock, he would not be allowed to enter, yet he would, by God's grace, enter into his eternal rest, being laid to rest by God himself, having seen his glory Having been given the law, Moses reminds Israel as they are going over to be people that live between the two piles of stones, the stones upon which the law is written and the stones uh, that form the altar itself. We are to be at all times people who are not living in the tension of law and gospel, but the guidance of the law and the gospel. We need to be very comfortable with both of these things. And so tonight, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 27. Next week, we'll look at the curses and the blessings related to the covenant. But for now, just these 10 verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 27. You can follow along with me in your Bibles if you would like. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of the law which you have crossed over, when you have crossed over, excuse me, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God and you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. As far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask as we enter into this time that you have allotted for us to come to worship to hear your word read and preached, to offer our prayers unto you, these things being the means by which you build your kingdom, and in a moment the sacrament. We pray, O Lord, that these would be the means by which grace might abound in us all the more, that we might learn to know and love and obey your word. And so make us faithful, profitable servants who long to do your will. This we ask in your name. 
Amen. When I first entered into seminary, uh, you had to take the language classes first. The language classes uh, needed to precede the Bible courses so that as you are moving through the Old and New Testament, oftentimes New Testament was taught first and then Old Testament, although I will admit um, Greek was and remains a mystery to me. Uh, Hebrew was much easier because it's a lot like English where you have um, sort of a very set rudimentary syntax. Greek is a kind of jumble syntax where, based upon certain conjugations, you can have a subject and a verb on opposite ends of a sentence that are related to one another, and you don't know it till you've read the whole sentence. But it is a more robust language, and so you can do a lot more with it. Well, one of the ways in which we tackled these new languages is my roommate and I would sit down, and we would take cards. This doesn't have anything on it. Cards like this, and we would write... The word, how it looks as you conjugate it, if you've studied any of the Romance languages, you've seen this, Spanish or Latin or Italian or any of those languages, and its definition. And then you always develop memory clues, and oftentimes the sillier the better. And the reason you write these things on a card and every night you drill these things into your head is because you are learning a language that is not natural to the language you grew up with. And it's practice, practice, practice. You write these things down and you study them. In the same way, the law of God comes to people who, and I'm using a metaphor here. Children, what I mean is I'm using this as an example. When we just read earlier, we have, because of Adam's first sin, the want of righteousness so that we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from that proceeds all actual transgressions. That means from your parents, the language, the grammar of your heart is sin. And in order to walk in righteousness, you need to take the law of God, you need to write it down, and you need to study it so that it becomes your new language. Parents, you understand this as you raise your children? Though there is an element of the law of God written on our hearts, there is an element of the law that must be written down so that we can see it, take heed of it, listen to it, and then do it. And as Israel is moving into the land of promise... God wants that land to be a land where his law is written everywhere. Everything they touch, everything Israel does, everything they think, all of their emotions, they are to be a people wholly given over in this new place to the law of God. Another illustration. Uh, Recently we had new carpet put in two of the upstairs bedrooms. Well, they're the only two upstairs bedrooms that didn't have hardwood. And there are some rules related to the carpet. Woe be unto you if you're a pet and you're in one of those bedrooms. And you can't wear shoes in those bedrooms. There are laws that dictate how we're going to keep those fibers as clean as possible. And you need to follow those rules. <laughs> I heard my, one of my kids say, no eating. No eating. 
and only water, and even then with fear and trembling. A cup, a lid must be on that cup. In the same way, as Israel is going into the land, they are to be a nation, they are to be a people who by their conduct, they do not spoil the land, but they bless and benefit and enhance the gift that it already is to them. They are to nurture it. They are to walk in holiness before God. Now, when we go back and we look at books like Deuteronomy, most of the church has no idea what to do with the book of Deuteronomy because we over-spiritualize the promises and the curses of God giving the law and giving the covenant to his people because this is what we often do. And it's not wrong to run to the cross as the center of all revelation, but there is more to Christian life than the gospel. Now, before you shriek back and go, how dare you? Just think about your daily lives and all of the rules that you follow in your home, in your places of work, in the land in which you live that are good laws, but are not the gospel. God is teaching Israel to do two things with the law. He is pointing them to their need of salvation, to their need of taking the law and writing it on their hearts, not just memorizing it, but loving it, and how to actually live. I, Christians nowadays are so impractical and so almost spiritually and heavenly minded that if you if they were to for a moment being if they were to be given the reins of civil authority they wouldn't know what to do with it listen if i were to walk up to a horse and someone were to hand me the reins i wouldn't know what to do it would be a bad situation i had to get on a horse but i don't know how to direct and guide a horse some simple instruction would be necessary this is what god is teaching israel how to go into the land and not get spat out of the land. How to live in the land and actually nurture the land. In the same way, fathers, you teach your sons or those young among you how to use a chainsaw or mow the grass. Or how to clean your home or how to cook a meal. God is giving Israel instructions as to how they are to live in the world that he has made and to prepare for the Messiah who will come. And those things are not in tension with one another. And we ought not to think that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is the gospel. Because from the very beginning, there has always been law and there has always been the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom through the people of God. We see it in the garden. We see it outside of the garden ultimately through Christ. So let's look. I'm all worked up now. It doesn't take much. <laughs> let's look at how Israel is commanded to walk and to be guided by these two pillars that every Christian godly society should live between. The law of God written as a standard, as a canon, and the altar of sacrifice that reminds us of how we are made right before him. Two points. The first, when you cross over, and the second, take heed, listen, and obey. 
Let's look at the first point when you cross over. We find here Moses coming to the end of his life. And he is imparting to Israel the wisdom that the Spirit has for him to teach them how they are to live. And so Moses, verse 1, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which your Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones, and then you're to take these stones, whitewash them. They didn't have paint. You couldn't go to Sherwin-Williams. But you take this lime, which was a naturally occurring substance, you break it down, you mix it with water, and then you cover these stones and then you write on them. And then you're to take some other stones and you're to make a pile with those where you make sacrifices. And so we find throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Covenant, throughout the New Covenant, and when I say Old Covenant and New Covenant, this is what I want you to hear. The one covenant of grace. There is the covenant that is oftentimes called the covenant of works or the Adamic administration or the covenant of life. And there's different ideas about what kind of covenant existed between God and Adam and his wife. But our confession is clear. Upon the condition of perfect obedience, Adam and his posterity, who would have been us, we are his posterity, but we would have been blessed by his obedience. Instead, we're cursed by his disobedience. And so God, responding to the disobedience of Adam, not in a kind of, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do now kind of way, but knowing what would happen, entered into that same covenant, not with Adam, but the second Adam. And through Christ, our covenant head, Christ fulfills the law that Adam could not or did not And he takes upon himself our sins. When I say old covenant, I mean the covenant of grace administered in the Old Testament and the new covenant, the covenant of grace administered in the New Testament. Maybe that clears things up. Maybe it doesn't. Within the Mosaic covenant, I'm adding now another term, that covenant that God entered into with the nation of Israel... He built into that covenant blessings and cursings based upon the canon, the law, the standard of his revelation, the Ten Commandments. And onto those Ten Commandments, he built laws for the temple, the tabernacle, and for society. When we look back at those laws, this is what we say concerning Christ. Christ fulfilled all of the ceremonial or the laws concerning the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And because Christ fulfilled all of those things, the altar is no more. The moral law stands forever, the Ten Commandments, or the summary of it in the Ten Commandments. But the civil laws that we find in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere in some fashion, passed away when the passing away of the nation of Israel, except for the general equity, the sort of case law application of those things. What we have done now, in many ways, 
in large part due to our lack of covenant theology applied to all of life, is we have jettisoned the case law, general equity application of the law. Now, kids, I see you. Your eyes are rolling into the back of your head. You have that glazed over look like, um, is there going to be lemonade later? I get it. Here is where I'm coming from, and here is probably where many of you were raised. Christians now are taught to look at the law and go, bad. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Israel wasn't under the law. They were under grace. The only people who have ever been under the law are those who seek to be justified by the law. And sometimes they were Israelites. Sometimes people within the church are under the law because they seek to be justified, made righteous by the law. God in the old covenant did not make that a difficult thing to understand. It was clear to them. What the law does is it drives us, it drives us to this realization that, oh man, I need to keep it, but in knowing that I cannot keep it perfectly, that altar is a huge part of my life with God. I will strive to obey. I love the law, but at the same time, the law reveals to me I cannot perfectly keep it, so I must go to the altar. I must make peace with God through sacrifice. Nothing's changed except this. Christ has been offered once for our sins. So that when we see our disobedience, the table is a picture of this. We run to Christ as the only one who is able to forgive us for our sins. And if we are to live in covenant fellowship with God, we must understand that faith without works is dead. This is where James fits so beautifully into the New Testament. You show me your hope in the altar, I will show you my hope in the altar by reading and knowing and keeping the law to use the sort of language of Deuteronomy 27. And so here, as Israel is going into the land, God renews the call to holiness. And this is what he says. As a people, there needs to be a pile of stones that you build or you put one on top of the other, and then you whitewash those stones and you write the law of God on it. Now, there are some reasons for this. When you think of writing it down, like I, the illustration I gave earlier, it's for the purpose of what? Putting it here, remembering it. Write the law of God on your forehead, on your doorposts, on your hands. Everywhere you go, your life is to be governed by the law of God inscripturated, written down. But more than that, let's say you would go into a courthouse. I think maybe... Are all courthouses now devoid of the Ten Commandments? Maybe there's some. Many of them still do. Why are those Ten Commandments on the wall in the courthouse in public? Because that law is for everyone. And every time a judge puts on his robe or a jury uh, hands down a verdict, they need to look at those things and say, we are all under that. That law governs all of us, and none of us are over that. It's a standard, it's a canon for everyone. It unifies the body. 
so that you can look at that and say, see, this is the law for all of us. Kids, this is how it's expressed in your life. When you see your parents using the law and misapplying it and playing favorites. Sometimes you're wrong about that. (laughs) Well, Johnny got to X, right? So what you do is you lay down the law in your house and say, in this house, here is the law, and there are no exceptions to those rules. And different houses have maybe different sub-laws under the law of God. Don't wear your socks outside without shoes. Right? Because what does it do? It tears holes in your socks. Don't run in the house so that you're not running into people and getting hurt. Those laws are reflections of what? Well, the law about not running in the house, thou shalt not kill. Now you may go, what? Well, have you ever gotten a bad head injury from running into the kitchen countertop? <laughs> so all of those little laws find themselves with these sometimes little tendrils going back to and feeding off of the Ten Commandments. This call to holiness is renewed. And so as Israel crosses over, God would have them remember he is the one who fashioned them, he is the one who made the covenant, and they are to remember it. And the reason why the law is right there across the border is because this land is to be hemmed in. Its boundaries, its borders are governed by this law. When you walk into someone's home, maybe you're visiting, you may be wondering, all right, what are some of the particulars of their house? Sometimes we'll have company come over and they all take off their shoes. The problem with our house and having had eight people reside in it at one point is if everybody takes off their shoes at the door, There's just nowhere to put all those shoes. So we tend to wear our shoes. Now, our floors have suffered for it, but those are the things. When a sojourner crosses over into the land of Israel and he sees those stones, what does he see? This land is governed by these laws. This border is a border that is guarding a nation whose laws are these. These are the laws of this land. What are the laws that govern your life? Have you read them? Do you know them? Brother and sister, we live in an antinomian evangelical age where you hear young Christians, especially Gen Xers on down, ridiculing Christians who love the law. And do you know why? Because there's no spontaneity in the law. What they don't realize is that their whole lives... And the organization of those lives is dependent upon laws like the law of thermodynamics, (laughs) for one. The law of gravitational forces. Their law is everywhere. There are laws everywhere. So what are you to do? You are to say in the organization of yourself as a corporate people, this is what we are about. I am the Lord your God, which led you out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And there it is, right there. Number one stone. No 
other gods. One of the ways in which you can write that down, children, is you listen to songs that help you memorize the Ten Commandments. In fact, when I was at university, my uncle gave me some advice for studying. And he said, it's very simple. When you go to class, you take notes. And then after you go home from class, you copy those notes. And then prior to your exam, you recopy those notes. And by copying and recopying, you are putting those, it's called greasing the groove, if you've never heard that phrase. You are putting that information time and time and time again into your mind so that it becomes rote. It becomes part of who you are. And so the stones of the law are not to be rejected then or now. They are our Ebenezer's. We sing Ebenezer. It just means a a standard. It means something that we erect, that we establish, that is a reminder that serves to remind us of God's acts. But not just the stones of the law, but they are also to build an altar. Now this altar, verse 5, And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not use an iron tool on them. Why? Because they're not to be fashioned here by the imperfect craftsmanship of a man. They're just pick them up, put them down, build a place where you can put a sacrifice. But the land of Israel is not only to be a place governed by the law of God, but it is to be a land covered by the grace of God. And the people are covered by that grace. You see, we have brought filth and impurity and rebellion into creation. And all of it must be redeemed. All of it must be redeemed. And the altar made of earthen things, offered by men who live upon the face of the earth, and an animal as a sacrifice reminds us that all of it must be purged of its impurity. And so, in order to dwell in that land, for a holy people to live in a holy land, it must be governed by the law and washed by the blood. It is, in essence, doing for the family in Egypt the same thing for the land and the people as they're going over. It must be covered. It must be a land that is characterized by sacrifice, And holy living. And so Deuteronomy was about Israel being blessed. How to be blessed. Instruction. But also how to be a blessing. How to be a nation in which sojourners might wish to reside. We say of this nation, right? Give me your tired, your hungry, your poor. Why have people flocked to the land of America? Historically. And even today. To seek a better life. What has made this nation historically such a good place to live? Is it the experiment of secular humanism? And these great great documents that arose from the... No, it is particularly because certain men devoted themselves to live not under the authority of some nameless God or no God at all, but we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are equal 
before God and have certain inalienable rights. How does one have an inalienable right? That means a right that is not given to you by your neighbor, but by your maker. You have to believe in a maker. Now, before this becomes a, a sermon that they post, putting me in jail for being a Christian nationalist, which is a title I wear with pride, we do need to understand why this nation or any nation can be a blessing or any group of people or any church. If the church wishes to be a blessing, what must she be? Devoted to the law of God and the sanctuary in which grace is conveyed. And so she must always, the saints of God, in whatever sphere of corporate union and fellowship they find themselves, laboring, keeping covenant, walking and living between these two piles of stones. That of the law and that of the gospel. And they are not in competition. They are both necessary for us to walk in covenant faithfulness. That is how Moses wishes for Israel to think of their covenant loyalty to Jehovah. Second point, take heed, listen, and obey. How do we do this? How do we do this? You shall offer peace offerings, verse 7. You shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Have you ever looked at the components of our Lord's Day liturgy? Uh, yesterday we had a visitor with us, um, and we were inviting him to worship with us. He's not here today. That's okay. But one of the members of our church said, you should come work with a, uh, worship with us. It's pretty based. Have you heard that phrase lately, based? It's sort of a contrary term to the madness that we find in the world around us today. Uh, based means built upon something. The point that he was trying to make is, if you come and worship, what you will find is a stability and a structure that is built upon something more ancient, more glorious, and more stable than the sort of silly culture in which we are surrounded by today. I, I was happy to hear that. <laughs> I was happy to hear that a member of our church thinks that and that he humbly boasts about that kind of liturgy. When you move through the liturgy of this church, what you find in every single Lord's Day liturgy baked into it are the two pillars, the law, and then always within the preaching or the singing or some reminder in the assurance of pardon, the altar. The pillars of stone with the law and the altar and in these two things, again, we do not find contradiction. They are not at war with one another. They are both given to us by God as to how we are to faithfully live. They are the foundation. God's word is the foundation. The law contains the covenant stipulations. Do this and you shall live. If you do not do this, you shall die. Or if you do this... You shall die, depending on whether, well, if it is an offense of God's law. For those who have been called by God, baptized by God, who live before God in the watching world, the law is how we are to function. And when we live according to the law of God, 
we become that holy nation that the nations flock to and they say, how, how, as Peter would write, do you have hope? But you will never be seen as one with hope if you do not what? Shine with the light of the hope that is found in obedience to God's word. Not just by believing in Christ, but by living a holy life before others. In fact, if I could say, if there is ever a foundational text for faithful Christian apologetics, it is this. Build before men a life that reflects the law of God lived out and the grace of God applied. Law and gospel. And so the foundation are these things. The exhortation then is to keep these things ever in your minds as the guide. And so we read this concluding two verses, verses 9 and 10. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen. Take heed, listen, and then do. There's three exhortations. Now, when you say, take heed, parents, this is akin to trying to talk to your child while they're doing this. You know what I mean? Walking around, and you grab them by the face, and you say, look at me. Look at me. Take heed. Take heed. Acknowledge that Christ, that the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who is speaking. You must be present in his presence. And then when you are there, as I'm reminding my children constantly in worship, shh, listen, listen. In order to listen, your ears are tied to what other organ is an instrument? These things right here. You hear what you look at. The testimony of this is, have you tried to talk with someone with a mask on? If you can't see their mouth moving, I get about 40% of what they're saying. These things are as important to these things. Your ears and your eyes are tied together in this glorious communication, which is why our faces were never intended to be covered in the presence of God. Because he wants all of our face to be exposed to all of his revelation so that we see him and the man who's speaking on his behalf And we take it in. You take heed. And then whatever is being said, you're tuning in. You're tuning out all this stuff. The distractions. Y'all are looking over there like there's maybe something over there. I'm not talking about this side of the congregation. And you listen. For what purpose? Wives, I know your greatest frustration in life is talking to your husbands and then having... Talk to your husbands, they say, huh? Listen to me. And then in light of what you have heard, these things right here are the instruments of what? And these things right here, doing. This this feeds a life of obedience. And it all begins on what you see. Do you see the law written? Do you see the altar smoking? Do you see Christ upon the cross, the sacrifice for your sins, and in light of his glorious work for you, you look at the law and say, you want me to do this? Okay, I'm going to do that. 
One eye on the law, one eye on the gospel, and you walk in such a way that you bless the land and you bless others by creating a place where people flock. This is how we make the world jealous. This is how we will make the Jewish nation jealous. Paul speaks of that day when the glory of the church will become so manifest that in her glory and her power and her strength, which we sang about in Psalm 149, it's a military march song. We create a place and we become a people that the nations look to and they say, I want to live there. I want to live there. But if our lives are not governed by both of those pillars, those piles of stone of law and gospel, then we will never be a light to the nations. The place that we will live will never be a blessing. We must take heed, we must listen, and we must do. We must act. We must live between the stones. Maybe that's a a motto for you. Maybe it'll be a motto for me. Live between the stones. Let them be your guide. Therefore, verse 10, you shall obey the voice of the Lord and observe his commandments and his statutes which I command you today. In this, we will be salt and light. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God.